Why would a woman set out to climb the tallest mountain she could find? For the same reason a man would, of course. Because it's there. The Gilded Age pioneer whose ambition shattered glass ceilings at the very top of the world. Next. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old towns of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Now number one in podcasting, thanks to discerning listeners like you. In this episode, our time machine welcomes aboard royalty of a sort, one whose throne rose into the clouds themselves. The book is Queen of the Mountaineers, the trailblazing life of Fanny Bullock Workman. Our Sherpa as we climb through this compelling woman's life is Catherine J. Prince, whose previous books include American Daredevil, Death in the Baltic, and Shot from the Sky. Catherine has worked as a correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor in Switzerland and in New York, where she reported on the United Nations and is a frequent contributor to the Times of Israel and find magazines everywhere. Visit her at katherinejprince.com, at cjprince7676 on Instagram, or Prince on Twitter. That first name is spelled C-A-T-H-R-Y-N. Okay, now that we've packed up our climbing gear and practiced our knots, let's join Catherine Prince and bow to the courage of the woman they called Queen of the Mountaineers. I'm joined on the line by Catherine J. Prince, who brings us Queen of the Mountaineers, the trailblazing life of Fanny Bull. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with the History Author Show, Catherine. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. I'd like to start where Queen of the Mountaineers does, and that's with the cover. There's a photo of your subject, and it shows Fanny Workman with a pile of mountaineering equipment, a big heap of stuff that I think any of us can relate to if we have a big project going, or maybe if we've ever gone camping. When you go on vacation, you have all of that stuff, and you're not sure where you're going to find anything. But she looks like she knows where her stuff is. She looks like she's a little bit weary there, a little tired. I've heard some people compare it to the expression of a three-year-old when they look at a photo like this, where they say, they're going to give you exactly three seconds, and you better get that picture because they're going to run off. So this is the expression she's wearing on her face on the cover of Queen of the Mountaineers. But it's what she's not wearing that's surprising. She's not wearing pants. 
She's wearing a dress. And I imagine if you were going mountaineering, especially 100 years ago when it's a male-dominated field and you want to get going and you want to break into it and you want comfort. For instance, women riding horses, they would wear pants later. And that was a that was a big fight for them to be able to wear pants or bicycles where <laughs> they had the women's bicycle with the dip in the frame so that they could wear skirts. So this was a big deal when I looked at that. I really got to know her just from looking at that picture and her face. So tell us about her. What does this photo tell us? How do you choose that for the cover? So choosing that photo for the cover, um, as you know, she she took a lot of photos. She loved photographing her subjects and her trips. And her husband also took a lot of photos. And this one stood out to us for some of the reasons that you say I really get a good look at her determination and her no-nonsense attitude. And also, she always seemed to have this impatience to just get on with the climb, just get on with the descent, you know, whatever they were doing. Um, she rarely smiles in photographs. But the other point I would say is about the skirt. Like you said, here's Fanny, who is an advocate for women's rights. But she purposely chooses to wear a skirt. And at first glance, that might seem to contradict her conviction, the idea that women are equal to men. And so, you know, you think, oh, she'll definitely wear pants. Um, it was both her personal preference not to, but there was also, she was pretty savvy. She knew that wearing a skirt would get her noticed. So if you see photos of her like group shots on the summit, you know immediately which one is Fanny Bullock Workman, because she has the skirt on. So it was also a way for her to stand out. She'd be easy to spot. You're always going to go to her first. And so it was an interesting way to send what I think was her unmistakable message that women were equal to the task at hand. And it's interesting, too, because, as we'll talk a little bit later, her rival wore pants. And this is coming just out of this era where there were laws against women wearing pants. You know, you you could get arrested for wearing pants huh. just, you know, a few decades before that. And there were a lot of political cartoons at the time, you know, showing that, you know, if women were in pants, that they were going to emasculate men. And so she's just kind of coming out of that era. But I, I thought it was really interesting what it said about her and her knowledge and, and the way she understood she also needed to, I don't want to say play the press, but just how to use media to get her message across and she knew like with that outfit you're gonna know who's who up on the mountain it reminds me of a phrase from college the idea of conforming by not conforming by the late exactly. by the late 80s the example that someone said to me was there there shouldn't be hippies anymore you're you're way too old to be an, a literal hippie you can you can be influenced by that culture and people know your parents maybe had that age but you should be something unique and to yourself you don't have to go right down the list and check all of the things that a hippie would be because it's just acting apart it's not being yourself and for her i like that she thought that she wasn't going to wear pants just because she really put thought into it it's a chapter that you have chapter four that's the title steadfast in skirts 
And I thought having read about her and gotten to know her in Queen of the Mountaineers, that made a lot of sense to me. I said, that's exactly who she is. And she was going to wear it. And what you say makes perfect sense. She was going to stand out. And the fact that she could wear pants didn't matter. That wasn't the important thing. I think, especially mountaineering, it's something that you have to keep your mind on that mountain. You have to keep your mind on climbing and you have to choose your steps carefully your mind wanders and mm-hmm. that's it you could slip you could yeah. fall you could kill yourself or somebody else and she's climbing with her husband mm-hmm. the whole time so i i like yeah. that keen sharp mind that she has yeah and you know just one more thing about the pants later on when um she does get into that the dispute over the altitude she does you know she makes one or two little digs at her rival about the pants and kind of, you know, going back to that, well, I'm not going to do it just because someone else is. And she's very true to her character. She doesn't pretend to be anyone other than Fanny Bullock Workman. She's very true to herself. I mentioned the time periods and how things change, technology and attitudes. That's what I want to reach at next, because the logistics of mountain climbing in Fanny Bullock Workman's era can't possibly compare to the 21st century. And that's something that when I was reading Queen of the Mountaineers, I tried to put myself in that mindset. And it's not easy. I find even watching TV shows that are from 30 years ago, say, much less a movie that's from much farther back, you expect the person to whip out their cell phone. You expect, expect them just to call somebody sometimes. <laughs> And it's a little strange. I have a colleague and he says his daughter asks him when he tells a story, well, show me the video. Show me the pictures of it because she's grown up with her whole life being videoed and taking right. pictures. And he <laughs> said, no, and you know, we, we didn't have phones with cameras in our pocket. We just had to live things and remember what actually happened. So, you know, if you want to hear the story, that's all it's going to be is me telling you the story. It's not going to be a multimedia presentation. So it's great that she took many pictures, did Fanny Bullock Workman. But I wanted to ask you to put us in that mindset here in the 20th century. Explain to us, not only does she have no GPS, you mentioned the controversy later about her height and how high, what her altitude was. Mm -hmm. Explain to us the technology that was involved, some of the things that are here in this pile that's on the cover of Queen of the Mountaineers. Right. She starts this cycling expeditions in the 19th century. So she's just the turn of the, you know, she, she bridges the 19th, 20th century. And so the sheer logistics of it, I found just in the research, it could exhaust you just seeing what she had to do to get to where she wanted to go to even begin exploring. You know, we, we could think of, you know, oh, that's, you got a long flight and car travel, and it might still only be ultimately a day or two of travel to get to where you want to go. She's got weeks of travel just to get to where she wants to go. She's often leaving from Germany. She'll get on a train. She may take the train to Marseille and then she's got the boat and then she's in India and then she's got another train and horses and mules. So just moving her, it's not point A to point B, you know, it's like this zigzag, really arduous journey which I, if I think now, you know, she had danger just to get to where she wanted to start. One thing I think that people see that are similar, she also had to contend with visas and permits and bureaucrats. The way that I think people, it depends on where you're exploring, have to go through for today. And the, the other thing, just comparing time, is her supplies. She has no lightweight fabrics, no 
Gore-Tex or dry fit or dehydrated foods, first aid, she doesn't have quick clot or antibiotics or neosporin. I mean, they have to bring in every single thing from the bandages to sewing needles to tins of meat. She brings in sheep and chicken that they're going to later have to butcher to eat. So I just kept feeling like she has these caravans of people and equipment with her. No GPS, no satellite phone. So they know if something happens, they're not going to be able to get help so quickly. As for the measuring, that's also just completely different. As some of the some mountain climbers explained to me, you know, triangulation is still used, but that was the main thing that they used back then. It was just more rudimentary in Fanny's day. By the time the workmen start doing that, so centuries old technique and they would have to take direction plots from two separate locations and then they graph that and they superimpose the graphing paper and you get a scale model of the landscape. And I'm giving you a really rough sketch of how that works. And they'd also use barometers for measuring as well. So it was a little bit more rudimentary than we have now. The principle was the same, but you know, they, they couldn't just plot it on a GPS. They don't have satellite phones or anything like that. So there were a lot of corrections later made to some of their measurements. She still held that altitude record that stood the test of time for her, but there would be later corrections by 50 feet, 25 feet, 100 feet that they would even go back and have to correct. No medevac chopper for her if she gets injured either. All Mm -mm. these things you think of. And you're talking about planning the trip. She might not even have known where she was going. Certainly when you go up there, I'm watching her go through these trips with her husband, William Hunter Workman. It's really into the unknown. It's great to see a couple that does those things together, that did those things together. Here I'm talking about them like I know them because I feel like that after reading <laughs> reading Queen of the Mountaineers. But yeah. that's the thing. You're watching them go on these adventures together. They're conquering mountains. They're doing it all with support. They're doing it all together. It's not something where she runs off on her own. Right. This is something where Anna Smith-Peck, her rival that we've hinted at a couple of times, is a single woman and she doesn't have the means that mm-hmm. Fanny has. And right. that makes Fanny even more compelling, though, that she's there with a husband, with a family, with this comfortable life that she decides to leave behind. It would be so easy for her to just sit there in the drawing room, just be one of the visitors to a place like Downton Abbey, let's say, or just hang out in New York on <laughs> right. Fifth Avenue. What is all this craziness with carrying your own chickens to slaughter them? You do not have to do this. Right. But she does. She chooses to. So yeah. what is it about her upbringing and her family, the nature versus nurture? Clearly, she wanted to go up at the mountain and wanted to climb the mountains with her husband. What was it about her family upbringing and then about finding a husband that's going to support you in those things, not tell you, no, don't do that? We all are familiar with spouses. Maybe our own spouses don't want us to do things. I had a friend and he said, well, this motorcycle is going for sale as soon as I get married, right? (laughs) So (laughs) it's that kind of thing, which incidentally I supported because I didn't want it to end up splattered all over the Garden State Parkway or anything. Right. That's something about her that you wonder. She is not the fictional character if you decided you were going to draw a fictional character from this era that was going to be a mountain climber there's nothing about her that i'm reading that says to me yeah this is a woman who's going to travel seven weeks to get to the matterhorn or wherever and climb that mountain yeah so where does she come from yeah you're absolutely right 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. Because actually, in the there's a few maybe little clues in her personality, but not a lot. Not when you you think about you know she grows up and her family's progressive to a point. She, she was born in Worcester, Massachusetts. Her father was governor of the state. He was something of an abolitionist. You know, his name is not really one of the ones that we know, but he was. But her mother was very typical of their socioeconomic level. She did her philanthropy and charitable works and was you know, active in their community. But her mother was by no means pursuing a, a profession and certainly not anything like mountain climbing or cycling tens of thousands of miles. Where we see Fanny's independent street come out is they send her abroad for finishing school, which again was pretty common for people of her socioeconomic level. And they think she's going to go and she'll perfect her French or German and probably at least from her parents' point of view, and she'll you know find a husband overseas. And she comes home fluent in French and German and no husband. It's not interesting to her at that point. She, she writes a few short stories, um, and she actually does get them published. And the thing about the short stories that stood out to me most was that the protagonist in them seemed to be a thinly veiled Fanny Bullock Workman, which is, I'm not going to get married. You know, I'm going to be independent. Somehow there's these like romances that just don't quite work out. So she doesn't come home really set on getting married, but she meets William Hunter Workman. It's not really clear how they met. They you know, traveled in the same circles. And she always calls him Hunter. That's her nickname for him. And like you said, he's so, he's not just supportive of her. He wants to go along and do this with her. And so they start climbing in the White Mountains in New Hampshire and then eventually decide they're going to move overseas. And I think today we would consider him definitely a feminist because he's supportive. He champions her. He relishes seeing her, you know, in the limelight and spearheading these expeditions. And he's very encouraging of her. And then when they have children, he's the same way with their daughter, Rachel. So I think that part of that, you have to chalk up to luck. I don't think that she knew initially that he would be so on the same page with her, with with everything that they were doing. But he did. So they enjoyed decades of travel and, and expeditions together. And I think he was really content sometimes to kind of take the second seat to her, to her being the lead on, on everything. When they go off on those adventures, you mentioned that they have children. It means leaving their daughter, Rachel, <laughs> almost to raise herself. And I thought about the Victorian parenting techniques that they had and that they would send their children away. But even by Victorian standards, never mind American Victorian standards, this was a lot of time of Rachel just sitting there and there's no FaceTime. There's mail that's going to take just as many weeks to get back to you as it as it takes them mm -hmm. to get where they're going. They have a son, Siegfried. He unfortunately passes away. Mm -hmm. That's a devastating, sad part of the book. Yeah. That doesn't ground them, though. They don't decide, well, we're going to stay at home. We're going to smother Rachel now, our remaining child, <laughs> and be overprotective, which you could certainly understand. In fact, in a touching moment, the grieving parents, they're up on a mountain and they name a little nameless peak, Siegfried, after their boy. Mm -hmm. I wondered what it was about them that 
made them choose that, that chose to press on with the adventures, not give in to feeling guilty, not give in to the idea of overparenting and being overprotective of their surviving child, to give people a flavor of the woman that they're going to meet in Queen of the Mountaineers. Yeah, I thought about that so much as I was researching it. I, I am a parent and trying to put myself, and I've left when my kids were younger for you know, reporting assignments or research, but I didn't leave for six, seven, eight months a year. And so it was really for trying to, to understand that part of Sammy was difficult in some ways. And she, as you know, after Sacred died, it was devastating. And reading those last days and moments in her journal and Hunter's journal was just really poignant. And especially because Fanny, really kept her emotions close to the vest. I think Hunter was much more emotive than she was, but she chose to forge on rather than, you know, become overprotective. I think that she was true to herself going back to the idea that, you know, she wears skirts. She is an explorer. She is going to do these expeditions and that part of her didn't, she didn't squelch and it didn't die. And I think in some ways, she realized staying home wasn't going to make Rachel safer. And I think Siegfried's death actually showed her that. I think we also realized they did live in the Victorian era, you know, those initial years when childhood mortality rates were higher. Not that that would make it easier, but I, I think it was maybe more of a part of life than today. And I think she also, you know, came to realize she found refuge in her travels and in her explorations. So where she wasn't staying home before, she just wasn't going to after. That was the way she she dealt with it. It was interesting, you know, coming, you know, trying to put my own way. I think I might have handled that, but that's how she did. Any good hero needs a rival. And we spoke about Anna Smith Peck, who is the rival of Queen of the Mountaineers, as is the name of your title of your book. <laughs> She's a competitor. She's 10 years older than Fanny Bullock Workman, and she does lack those resources. She doesn't have a husband. She's wearing pants. It's a very nice <laughs> juxtaposition. I mentioned if you were writing a novel that this would be an incredible yeah. backstory here to give Fanny. Well, this <laughs> is a great rival for her. This is a case of a real-life story that you have exciting people that are both so driven, that are both trying to succeed. And I found it amazing that it's a true story of a true person. She was just as fascinating and holding my interest as her picture on the cover of Queen of the Mountaineers. It was almost as if she stuffed me into that pack there and strapped me to a mule and said, come on, you're, you're coming along with us to climb these mountains and for 400 pages or whatever the story is. And, and it was exciting. I, I loved it. Of course, I was able to go sleep in a nice soft bed at night. <laughs> Anna Smith Peck, she's competing with her. She's seeing her get the headlines. She's wanting headlines on her own. They're going back and forth. As with novelists, as with somebody writing a book, you want to boost that narrative of a feud between the famous people. And the media, I could tell you, certainly having worked in it, a fight between two women, that's something even more exciting for them. Because in this era, particularly, we don't expect two women to be rivals like that. So tell us what the real relationship was like, as readers will discover it in your book. Right. It sounds like, like you know, they're just like us, Andy Peck and Fanny Bullock Workman. Um, what's interesting is, you know, I think of them as a precursor to the Tanya 
discrediting Nancy Kerrigan a bit <laughs> in the way that the media wanted to play them off each other. I was just thinking the same thing. It's so funny that you yeah. said it because we did not discuss it before, but that's just what was popping into my head. That's how they want to play it up. Of course, she didn't. Uh, nobody came and whack Fanny here with it in the leg, no. fortunately. But. <laughs> No, might have been no. tempting, but maybe she wanted to. No, <laughs> no. And here's a spoiler alert, but um, and it's really not because it's history. So, um, the two never met, which I was so intrigued like that when I discovered that. You know, as I'm researching it, I thought, wow, because they really their relationship became all the more intriguing to me because they had this intense feeling of competition and this idea of one pursuing the other. I kind of felt like they always felt like the other one was breathing down the other's neck, but they never met face to face. And even so they had this certain amount of disdain for one another because they really were polar opposites. You know, like I couldn't have dreamed up better opponents because you have Fanny Bullock Workman who is moneyed and she's married. She's a mother. You know, she wants to spend $13,000 in 1906 money to retrace Annie Peck's climb to settle the dispute, she doesn't have to think about it. Whereas Annie Peck is single, she has no children, she scrapes by, you know, she really, when she lectures, she needs that money. She has to fundraise for every expedition. So they really are polar opposites. But the really it was amazing though, when outside influences, some of the newspapers try to exploit these differences and their dispute over the altitude and try to personalize it a little bit. Both women said, you know, hold off. They each wrote to different um, editors of newspapers that this dispute, our rivalry is not about our personalities and it's about the science, it's about the numbers and it's about the altitude. And that was really interesting because you get the sense that even though they didn't meet and they didn't like each other, they still wanted it to be just about the, you know, the adventure, the the exploration, um, you know, and the altitude record. And I, I thought that was kind of interesting because I think in 2019, we still see that, you know, when women are facing off in sports or entertainment or, you know, many different arenas where people want it to be a little bit more sensational than it needs to be. You mentioned that dispute about the altitude a couple of times and about the science, because mm -hmm. I want listeners to understand that when you pick up Queen of the Mountaineers, you're not just getting again and again a travel log of places she's going and staying. It's not like that photo's guide to, you know, Fanny Bullock does whatever <laughs> mountain. It's it, she right. is expanding human knowledge. She's trying to advance the frontier of science at the time. But since you mentioned that rivalry or that dispute over the altitude, mm -hmm. bring us up to date on that and how that relates to the scientific endeavor that they're both going into. So it's in um, 1906. And what happens is uh, Fanny Bullock Workman has, she, she broke her own record uh, about three times or so. And, and the final one is that she climbs and she climbs 23,000, at the time she thinks it's 23,500 feet, it turns out it's a little bit less, like 23,100, 23,200. Meanwhile, Annie Peck is off in South America and she's climbing in Peru, Mount Huascaran, and she has five attempts on that peak. She finally climbs to the top and she 
actually doesn't take the altitude reading, but she claims that she has now the altitude record. So when Fanny hears about this, you know, across the ocean, uh, she's already, she's like deep in the Himalaya. She is not having it. You know, so she, that's when she sends these surveyors to triangulate the other mountain. And it's a dispute. It goes on for almost a year because they have to do this, you know, second measurement. And then the American Alpine Club weighs in and ultimately it settles in Fanny's favor that she does have the altitude record. But what both of those climbs do and what the dispute does is it does help advance scientific knowledge. You know, it, it does because you've got these surveyors taking measurements of peaks that haven't been climbed before. Of um, In Fanny's case, she's mapping with her husband. They're ma mapping glaciers um, that have been previously unmapped. And they make corrections when they know of them. And in some cases, there's corrections made later. So I think of it as, you know, any science today, when, you know, someone discovers some things or finds something, they write that first foundational paper. And then, you know, you can build off from that and correct it and alter it and tweak it. And so that a lot of their climbing was that as well. A lot of their exploration helped do that as well. And um, she, she went about getting awareness to that by lecturing. She lectured extensively, and there was a lot of newspaper and magazine articles and, and interviews that they gave. You're enjoying my conversation with Catherine J. Prince, author of Queen of the Mountaineers, The Trailblazing Life of Fanny Bullock Workman. You can find our guest online at catherinejprince.com at cjprince7676 on Instagram, or Catherine Prince on Twitter. Elizabeth Renetsky, author and documentary film director of Chasing Portraits, writes of the book, quote, Catherine J. Prince digs into original journals, manuscripts, and photos to reveal a woman whose ambition broke boundaries for mountaineers in general and women climbers in particular. Catherine, the original journals, manuscripts, and photos mentioned in that review makes my ears perk up because it brings to mind somebody that I read you thanked in the acknowledgments of Queen of the Mountaineers. And I'm excited about this book. So my occasional stumble is is why I just really, I feel like I'm right there on that mule with her going up the mountains. And wow, you have her journals, her manuscripts, her photos, right. especially the journals when, as you're saying, She's somebody who didn't emote a lot, didn't navel gaze or tell us all about her feelings. Yeah. She didn't have Instagram and Twitter and wasn't a product of our <laughs> modern age where we're out there saying, why me? Why anybody yeah. when things happen? Right. Yeah. And so when I saw the name David Peck, I thought, how did he flesh out this story of this robbery? And how is he related to Annie S. Peck? He helped flesh out more, I would say, a bit of the family lore and, and the personality. So he's a distant relative of Annie Peck because she didn't have children. So distant through the cousins, she had siblings. And what was interesting, um, we emailed and he knew, you know, about her adventuresome nature. And it was just fascinating that he was able to kind of just round out the family lore a little bit about her and about her trip, her love of adventure. And interestingly, this many generations later, that's actually something that he 
Westfield's his own sense of adventure. And he sent me a lot of photos. And I think he had done a bit of a blog for a while on some of his own travel. And he just, you know, credited that to Annie Peck. And so it was, it was kind of an interesting little icing on the cake to have someone and kind of see through the generations. You know, I, you know, again, it's that nature versus nurture with that adventuresome, you know, in the Peck family genes, it seems to be in David's as well. So he was just kind of an interesting you know, addition to be able to talk to someone uh, who had had some connection to Annie. How did you find him and get in touch? Oh, so there is a website that you might be familiar with called Find a Grave. Yeah, you know that one. <laughs> so my best friends are there. Yeah. Okay. So I say, and I feel like <laughs> I feel like when I say it, people are like, "What?" But there is a website, Find a Grave. And it's good for getting a start for seeing some family genealogy. And he was on the Annie Peck one as not an administrator. I don't remember how the genealogy or someone who had visited the website. So I basically just cold emailed him, which I do a lot for reporting and research and say, like, are you actually related? And if you are, I would like to ask you a few questions. And, and that's how I found David on Find a Grave. And he was just all too happy to speak, which is great, because sometimes you can't. You mentioned about yeah. Find a Grave, and because my wife is a genealogist, um, you can see the link there at historyauthor.com. But we were working on one of the sides of my family tree, and we were working with yeah. a cousin of mine, Zap. He's a magician, and that's what he goes by, Zap, Zap the Magician. If you look him up oh, wow. over there in London, he <laughs> travels all over, and well, I yeah. I was talking to him, and he was helping her so much because he goes to Cyprus. That's where my mother's side of the family is. Right. And because of the Turkish invasion, they lost their land, and there's oh, there was all these challenges to doing it. But mm-hmm. people is the one resource. And he called this one cousin so many times, and he said, "Gosh, mm-hmm. every time I call, he hangs up on me. I don't. I'm, I'm trying to tell him I'm not trying to sell you anything. Don't hang up on me. I'm, I'm a cousin <laughs> of yours that you've never met. And so it's it's just so great when somebody like David Peck picks up the phone and is willing to be open and answer it. It's just so nice. And I think having been in the media business, having done that kind of thing, sometimes you get such terrible responses and it's disheartening because you only want to help the relative of this person if for instance if people are right people are familiar with the website shorpy where they have all those great old high resolution photographs that's named after this young man i think his name is also adam Mm -hmm. shorpy is his name also higginbotham (laughs) i mentioned this other higginbotham recently but and they said, you know, we contacted some of the descendants, but they didn't seem really interested. They weren't off-putting. They weren't rude to us. They just were like, eh, right. okay, so he was a coal miner in Alabama, I believe it was. And it's like, man, it, it's right. just so great that he's willing to share with you and flesh that out. Because because as I feel here, looking at the cover of Queen of the Mountaineers, I want to know this woman's story. And this is touching a little piece of her and getting some things filled in. And I imagine for you, you were you were right. probably trying to say, okay, hold back your passion a little and sort of like fishing. You got to just bring the guy in a little at a time because otherwise you could think you're crazy or you want to know too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who are you? David Peck, the fact that he was open with you deserved a shout out. I was glad to see that in the acknowledgments because here's a woman that 
you describe as feeling she's David to Fanny Workman's Goliath. She has to go fundraise, all those things right. that you mentioned before. Yeah. You can relate to because I don't think any of us, when we're reading Queen of the Mountaineers, identify with somebody who's going to drop 13 grand to go check somebody else's math. Right. 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 And right. No. <laughs> yet Peck has her own style. She has her own little character mm-hmm. things like the mustache she draws on her woolen climbing mask. How cool is that? You know? Right. <laughs> because people are going to expect to see a man up there. Right. right. She's compelling, compelling in her own right. And right. I wonder if you ever considered writing a biography on her life or maybe putting both women in together. You could have called it Queens of the Mountaineers or something like that and said, <laughs> because it seems as if right. Fanny, again, could have muscled her way into your story. And I feel a little bit bad for it that she just gets shoved into the also-ran line, but that's her role, and certainly Fanny deserved her own book. So how do you choose to do that? How do you decide to narrow down your research and just focus on Fanny Workman? So the short answer is I didn't decide straight out, and I definitely did not narrow my research straight out. So I I think just like with reporting, I like to over-research and over-report. So I begin my books the same way I'll begin a newspaper story, which is basically I have a solid sense of what I think the story is, but my mind is open to where the story might lead. Initially, I had actually started my research at Brooklyn College where Annie Peck's papers are housed. So it was kind of and I started it there first, mostly because convenience. Brooklyn is closer to Connecticut than Scotland, than Edinburgh, where uh, workmen's papers are. So as I was going deep into that research, I kept thinking, oh, maybe I'll flip the story and I'm just going to focus on Peck. But then Fanny Workman just kind of kept tugging at me. And so the more I researched, I knew I would definitely wanted to give Annie Peck her due. And I slowly started to realize she's going to be the supporting character. And in my decision ultimately to focus on Fanny was I found Fanny just a little bit more complicated, more contradictory. And so for me, that just seemed, it just held more fascination for me just as an author and as a writer to kind of dig into someone who wasn't complete, you know, who, who was complicated, who wasn't, you know, a hundred percent likable use that word that gets overworked <laughs> used. But but she she was really interesting that way. So I decided then ultimately I knew that it was going to be Workman who I focused on. And I thought that Workman, even in some ways more than Annie, that Fanny Workman represented so much of what we continue to debate today, you know, which is a woman's role and a mother's role and a wife's role in society. And so kind of for those reasons she sort of emerged as the leading lady of the story and Annie became that supporting character. Because I think if you put them side by side, you would have bet on Annie Peck being the one who's a mountain climber. It made more sense. It doesn't bug us. Okay, she's from the wearing the pants to the being single to having a more modest life and more modest means to achieve this. Whereas Fanny Workman, you say, wow, you, you did all of this. There, Why would you do it? <laughs> and it makes us look at ourselves and say, well, okay, just because it's there, that's that's why. The same reason anyone does right. anything, the same reason that a man does it. Right. Fanny is the first woman to map the most distant reaches of the Himalayan mountains. Next time you look at a globe, think about that. Think about how far it would have been 100 years ago. She's just the second to address the mm-hmm. Royal Geographic Society of London. 
What other firsts did this trailblazer, as your subhead calls her, contribute during her years of climbing? So she was the first woman to address the Sorbonne and, uh, in Paris. She was the first woman to cycle the length of India. She and Hunter, that was um, before they turned to mountain climbing, they started at the south and went north. She was the first to camp higher than 19,000 feet. So they camped for, I forget how many nights right now, consecutive over 19,000 feet. And then she was the first woman to climb higher than 23,000 feet. So those were, those were her big firsts, which I don't think I will do one of them. <laughs> yeah, you say the, it's easy to tick them I, off. I, I am, it's, I, it's safe to say I will research all of it and wrote about it, but I will not be... We'll not be doing any of those. <laughs> yeah, just when you said biking all the way the length of India, <laughs> yeah. think about how big. In her woolen skirt. Yeah, and it's not like it's all flat, right? Right, wearing a no. skirt. I forgot about that. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it in pants. Yeah, wool. Uh, yeah. No wonder she looks tired on the cover, right? I know. And again, not something that she had to do. Yeah. That's what makes her fascinating. Right. To go to these places right. where you are going to be so out of touch for instance, Queen of the Mountaineers recounts her trip to Algeria and how she recoils at the treatment mm -hmm. of women there. So she's throwing herself into that. She doesn't have to. She can stay in that comfortable life. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that compels us with historical figures, whether it's one of the Roosevelts or mm -hmm. we look at the Kennedys or we look at the founding fathers who didn't have to risk their fortunes, their lives, and live in that misery at the Winter at Valley Forge, things like that. They could have just been comfortable, and yet they choose to do something with their life that's completely outside of that comfort zone. Right. She observes, for instance, in Algeria that there's no celebration when a girl is born compared to a boy. Mm -hmm. And she has to deal with that if she's going to be there, and she is cut off. She can have her husband there with her, but it's the two of them. At one point, she has to whip out mm -hmm. a gun right points it in a guy's face yeah they're, they're trying more to, than one <laughs> yeah trying to waylay her i mean she's not to be messed with if people think no. fanny is sort of an an old lady name somebody who you just pat on the head at the bingo <laughs> parlor they, imagine getting your your you know face ventilated by a woman named fanny because you try to mug her it's not going to happen so yeah she, right. <laughs> but she has to work with people from all of these different cultures. She has guides. She has staff. Mm -hmm. There's at one point that, that one guide's trying to get her to cross a bridge, and she's saying, it's going to fall apart under me. I am not crossing. So what is it about her personality that enables her to do that, even though, as you mentioned, she's not a soft person? She's a tough, driven person. At a time when she's dealing with people that don't want a woman telling them what to do, that would very much prefer she take her skirt and her gear and go back and knit something <laughs> in, in England or in Massachusetts, how does she right. confront that so that she can reach her chosen goal? She was definitely demanding, and some of her guides, we're not shy about saying that about her. And she was driven and she was, she did have, and so did Hunter. They did have tense relations with a lot of the porters that they hired and, and definitely some of the guys. There's that one scene with um, Matthias Zerbergen where they get into a bit of a screaming match at one point. He's a famous Alpine guy, you know, climber. And she basically ultimately prevails because She's not asking them to do anything that she won't do. She's not saying, let me up the mountain. She goes up that mountain with them. And so, and she's not complaining. So part of her able to finally get them 
to listen to her is that she's leading by example there. What's interesting, though, is her directness and her drive and her, at times, rudeness. I'm not, she was not always pleased and thank you and polite, but those were traits that male explorers did not have to explain or justify. And she, she talks about that later, the sexism on the mountain and off the mountain. She could be snobbish. I mean, she certainly came from money and she had that, she did sometimes have that attitude, but you know, she was also socially conscious. So that also, I think going back to that question of why I wanted to write about her, because she had all these dualities, but she wrote in 1895. So even before she starts climbing, and this goes back to that times when she's cycling through Algeria and Spain, and she wrote the advance of a nation in modern ideas may be judged by the position occupied by its women. And I love that because I thought that is more than a hundred years ago she's writing this. And then she lives by that, you know, on the mountain. So I think ultimately the, the guys come to respect her. The one she has that screaming match with ultimately comes to really respect her for what she accomplished. Um, but it wasn't easy. No, it doesn't seem it. And as you said, <laughs> I, not, I, I don't think yeah. either of us will be doing it anytime soon. No, I, maybe you, know, you but good luck. <laughs> yeah, now we don't even walk to the store without making sure we have six bottles of water and emergency flares right. and our cell phone. Can you imagine? Oh, yeah. you have the vapors here over the idea of leaving your cell phone home because what if you have to call somebody or play Candy Crush or whatever? So right. just to put yourself in the mindset of Queen of the Mountaineers and think about how she had to bring everything with her, bringing those animals with her so that she could mm -hmm. slaughter them, so that they could eat something, dealing with these people who you're going to have to go to bed. So if you fight with somebody mm -hmm. and you have to go to bed and go to sleep, you're not going to be whipping that gun out to protect yourself. No. Because she left this complete record, you're able to whittle it down for us and we get to enjoy it here mm -hmm. in Queen of the Mountaineers. But I wondered as I read that, as I always do, just as when I craft questions, I like to ask the question that the guest hasn't been asked a thousand times before. So <laughs> were there any things that if she were here today or if you could speak to a descendant of hers with a big pile of letters and some insight that you wish she'd had a moment to jot down while clinging to the face of a cliff? <laughs> what tidbit of information would you like to have at your fingertips? So a few things that I would have liked to, at least if I could have asked her like in person and they, they may not be entirely, they're not unserious questions, but I would have liked to know what she really thought. So in the book, she and her husband drink what she calls Hunter's medicinal tea a lot, which the readers will find is basically really weak tea with its whiskey. And that would be like their end of a trek drink every night. So I kind of wondered what she really thought of that. But I also wanted to know, I'd love to know from her other mountains on other continents. Was she glad that she only focused on the Himalaya? When she stopped climbing on the, in the eve of World War I and then she got ill and was never able to climb again. And I wondered if there were other places she would have liked to go and explore. So that, that would have been helpful. And I think I would have wanted to probe a little bit more just about Annie Peck with her. You know, what would she have liked to have actually been able to meet her in person? You know, and if she did, what would she have said or what would they have talked about? They're more, I think, personality questions that I would have liked to have been able to find out from her. Well, we've just about reached the summit here, which as we both have sheepishly confessed is only ever going to be a metaphor. We're not going to be following in Fanny's footsteps, trying <laughs> to scale the Matterhorn or any Himalayan mountaintop. 
But we have time for one final question. And I wanted to give you a chance to make your pitch because if listeners can't tell from the passion in my voice and tripping over myself to talk about how much I enjoyed Queen of the Mountaineers, why should a reader in 2019 who, like us, may never go higher than the top of a very tall hotel pick up Queen of the Mountaineers and meet this compelling woman and the cast of characters that surround her back before the World Wars? Well, I think... You know, my final pitch is that Fanny Workman's story is contemporary in that her experiences in the late 1800s and early 1900s serve as a model for a lot of the cultural discussions we're having today in 2019. She wanted women to be judged on their merit, and she strongly believed women should follow the path that was right for them and not the path society deemed correct. And I hope Fanny Workman's fortitude and seats on the mountain will amaze and delight readers and get you excited and make you feel like you are riding the mule to get into the (laughs) Himalaya. But her achievements are undoubtedly impressive. Yet I think the real message underpinning her story is how she navigated and bucked tradition. And she lived a life with purpose and determination. Well, Catherine J. Prince author of Queen of the Mountaineers. I thank you so much for putting me on this path and getting together all this climbing (laughs) gear today to put me in the pages here, to put me on that trail following Fanny Bullock Workman and Annie Peck. I hope that readers will want to get on board too and take that walk with her, not just on the mountain, not just the mountain climbing. As you can tell, neither of us are big, huge adventure people who are up there with the oxygen tank (laughs) trying to push higher and higher on K2. But yet we both enjoyed the story. That's a credit to you. I'm just the reader here, and now I'm just interviewing you. But I did enjoy it, and I think listeners, whatever their mountain is in their life that they would like to climb, whatever their path that they would like to walk, they'll learn something here from Queen of the Mountaineers, and they'll just get a great read. So best of luck with the book, and thank you again for sending it to me. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Dean. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Again, the book is Queen of the Mountaineers, The Trailblazing Life of Fanny Bullock Workman. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the HistoryAuthor.com page for this episode. By buying a book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our climb machine humming like usual. I have to thank Catherine J. Prince for such a fun conversation. It's great that she joined us and introduced us to Fanny and her rival, Annie S. Peck. They're two women that defied stereotypes in their own day, and today when we read about them, they make us question, too, how we judge a book by its cover. They defied convention in their own day, and today they still have the power to make us as readers question what we assume when we judge a book by its cover. Visit KatherineJPrince.com Follow our guest at CJPrince7676 on Instagram and toss her a follow at Catherine Prince on Twitter. Remember, her name is spelled C-A-T-H-R-Y-N. And while you're online, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean, Instagram at The History Author Show, Instagram at The History Author Show, 
or facebook.com slash history author. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. Or enjoy one of the written Q&As we post at historyauthor.com from time to time. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York.